So you probably all are familiar with both these terms, metta and vipassana. Metta practices, uh, the Brahma Viharas, the Four Measurables, and then Vipassana, which is now kind of more taken on the term mindfulness or Satipatthana. And so the theme of the day, the practice of the day is what does it happen if we integrate these? And I think that we really are best served if we see these as an integrated practice, not as different practices, but actually uh, even in the early discourses, in the very early discourses of the Pali Canon, the Buddha makes no distinction between metta and right mindfulness, as it's known, samasati. Right mindfulness is metta, metta is right mindfulness, and that they really need to be interwoven. And I really have found over the years that I feel like I like to have a practice that feels efficient. I don't know about you, but I don't have hours and hours a day to be sitting on the cushion practicing. I'm lucky to, lucky to sit for 30 or 45 minutes, four or five days a week, and lucky to get to a retreat or two over the course of the year. And that's probably the most most of us will ever get to do with maybe a day long here or there. And so if we have this limited time to cultivate the mind and cultivate the heart, it's good and, and I think helpful to have a, a practice that's efficient, something that we can, we can develop, that we can recognize, and that we can actually see <coughs> the progress that we're making on the path by just the example of being aware of just the quality of your own mind. And what is the quality of your own mind day to day? And so this is a liberation practice. This is rooted in the idea of freedom. Um, Buddhist liberation, this word vimuti, which means to liberate. But the other thing we have to realize that Buddhist liberation, uh, freedom, uh, happens in the context of discipline, um, which is a word I know that a lot of us don't love. Uh, Another way to say discipline would be sila. Sila is the ethical, integrity, behavioral, harmlessness, uh, generosity, kindness, goodwill, all these things. The, the, the really the core, the ground of Dharma work. And without sila, there's no samadhi, there's no panya, there's no mindfulness, there's no wisdom. So it's important for us to get a sense that the liberation practice actually does happen within a kind of discipline around how we treat ourselves, how we treat the world, and really the, this quality of harmlessness. And this really courageous intention that we take on in our lives as we look at the world and the state of the world and as we can see right now it's a little bit rocky uh, that we see the harm that's created in the world and we try our best to not contribute to not contribute to that as best we can there's plenty and that's a very courageous difficult challenging thing to do because we come into conflict with other people other people's ideas views opinions politics so on and so forth. And in the last couple of years, that has been overwhelmingly in our face. And so as practitioners, how do we meet that? How do we take that on in a meaningful way where we don't slide into the difficult posture of contempt, of taking a kind of moral superior high ground than that of others, or, or slipping into despair? Like, man, this is all going up in flames. And so it's really, really hard, actually, to find what I call the sweet spot. Is there a sweet spot in a moment-to-moment experience where I can put my heart, where, can I, where I can put my mind and say, yeah, good enough. This is good enough. Uh, and that becomes really how we use a metta-vipassana practice to navigate the tricky world 
that we live in. And so to just give us the, um, the biggest view that I can, I think one of the things that makes Dharma work so challenging, and that, and that is just this idea of the mind. What is the mind? And I think in our Western, English, modern way, we think of the mind as, as really too narrowly defined. I think most of us or most people think of the mind as just my thinking, my opinions, my views, my thoughts, maybe my feelings. That's about it. And so the word mind, there's actually many words in the Pali discourses that talk of mind. There's manas, chitta, vijnana, consciousness, heart, mind, attention. And so when the Buddha's talking about mind or vijnana, we could say consciousness is mind. He's talking about a lot more than what we're used to. He's talking about your body. He's talking about your five physical senses. He's talking about internal, external, both and internal, external. He's talking about our feelings. He's talking about our psychological behaviors, our thinking, our analysis, our complaining, our blaming, our, our, our kindness, our caring. Uh, he's really basically talking about everything. So we could actually say, and the word that I like to use a lot is really when the Buddha is talking about mind, he's talking about your full and total experience, the experience of the body, the experience of other people the experience of the attitude and the relationship I have with other people. And so when we see this kind of, uh, maybe we have to kind of relearn or unlearn some of the ways that we view mind because even the word mindfulness, we mostly just think about our own, you know, the private experience that I'm having here, back here, uh, which I'm actually having right now, you probably are too. Uh, and that's it, you know, how's that going? How's that project of going? And so that, that, I don't think that, I think that's too narrow of a, of a description. And so when we think about the way that the, really the, the mechanics of Buddhist meditation are actually very simple. I don't think it's complicated at all. I don't think the Buddha was trying to trick anybody. And so what, what, the, what we're doing in Medvapasana is we're trying to really just slow down enough uh, so that way we can have a receptive mind where we're actually uh, receiving our experience, our feelings, our body, our thoughts, our emotions, uh, which is actually in and of itself very difficult because the mind doesn't, the mind is, is really interesting. The mind is like a hammer on reality, trying to avoid, you know, fix and change and control and to get and to get rid of and to accomplish and to produce. If that's what you're doing, that's really, there's no mindfulness. That's just you living in the world of, 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 of habituation. Right? And of course, when we pull back and we receive that and we get that mindfulness, we're like, wow. The mind is just like habit central. Right? And so we have to kind of come to terms with that early on in our practice. And we have great, great frameworks for that. We have things like the five hindrances. The Buddha said, well, be aware of these things that your mind does. Your mind wants stuff. It wants to get rid of stuff. It's anxious and worried about things. It's you know, dismissive and not wanting to deal with things. And it oftentimes has doubt in its own ability to do anything. Right? So that's a great diagnostic tool for how to you know, understand really what's going on. And so when we, when, we, we, when, when we do receive, we kind of lean back, we kind of come into the body through the breath, practice you all know very, very well. 
is that we, we start to try to identify uh, things as on, uh, in an objective sense. We have the object, the physical object of the in-breath and the out-breath, right? Very basic. We have the physical posture of the body and, and the range of pleasure and pain and the, the body with its comfort and its discomfort and its aging and its sickness and all of the things that come with this vehicle of the body. And so we become, we become, but then we, one of the things that we don't learn, and one of the things I really want to teach and emphasize today is really where I think a lot of our liberation happens is in the attitude or the relationship that we bring to that. Well, the breath is boring. I don't want to just sit here and watch the breath all day. I'm going to get to the good stuff. I've been watching the breath for 20 years. I haven't seen anything but rising and falling. <laughs> no? That's an attitude. So attitude can become an object. My attitude, I'm bored, I'm aversive, I'm irritated. Well, what's irritation like? Well, it's not so good, actually. I don't really like it. Then why are you contributing to it? It's like, oh, I didn't know I was. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, I didn't know I had choice. Let me try to bring that back in. And so, so I, I really think that for much of us, and really all of us who live in a secular world, in the contemporary world, Dharma practice is a relational practice. The, the happiness that we'll find in our lives will come through the relationships we have with ourselves, with others in the world at large. I don't believe that for most of us, we have a lot of liberation in understanding the ultimate nature of reality or having insight into emptiness or having uh, developed the four jhanas on one retreat at one time before noon seven years ago. So I, don't, I think we can get bogged down in these kind of distractions. It's like, okay, so let's just all agree. The ultimate nature of the universe is inherently empty. Now what? What are you going to do with that information when, you, when your kids won't put their shoes on, when you're having an argument with your neighbor about politics? Is the understanding of the ultimate nature of the universe being empty helpful in those moments? Maybe. <laughs> M- might be helpful is actually kindness. That might be helpful. So trying to see that the Dharma as a relational Dharma, which actually elevates our responsibility a little bit because it's an active engagement with the world. Unlike uh, Panyavamuti, which is liberation through wisdom, which is really kind of, I think that's a practice left to the monastery because they're not choosing to be in the context of the busy world that we are. Probably for good, probably for good reason. Or maybe not for good reason, maybe for bad reason. Maybe a kind of withdrawal from the world. And so really, uh, it's, it's trying to recognize what's going on, recognize the relationship what's going on, and trying to liberate ourselves from whatever, whatever kind of destructive relationship is happening. Irritated, not wanting this, wanting that, feeling uh, inconvenience, feeling poor me, how come me, why me, always me? How come them? Why do they think this? there's too many people like this? If there was less people like that and more people like this, the world would be a better place. And we, we despair, and we kind of... We get, we get pulled into these habit loops and they're just not good for us or anybody else, really. Right. And so chitta-vamuti is a liberation of the heart through a relationship, through a Brahma-vihara, through metta. Metta mean, meaning kindness and friendliness. You all know this word, actually. You know this word, kalyanamita? Mita is the same der- derivative of the Pali term metta. Metta-mita, same thing. It just means friend. And I don't have to like you to be friendly. It's not about being nice and liking everybody. 
and being agreeable and being pleasant. It's about a physical action and activity towards that's kindness. It's, I actually don't really agree with a lot of what you have to say, and I think you're mostly wrong about a lot of stuff, and I don't particularly like being in your presence. And I can still be friendly. Who would have thought that was possible? I do it all the time. And that, 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 to me, that puts, the, that puts the practice more in the realm of reality. I'm like, well, I could do that. Which is why I think the term loving kindness, I think, is, a, is a not a great translation. Because we're not going to love everybody, and we probably shouldn't. But really, this kind of friendliness is kind of bringing it down to its more uh, human sense. And of course, the primary relationship that you want to have kindness to is the relationship we have with ourselves. <clears throat> and one of, the, one of the, the sort of a little bit of history of Metta Vipassana, I believe that Metta Vipassana was a practice that was really taught and developed in the early discourses, which kind of vanished over time. It was reemerged around the turn of the century by Lady Sayadaw, Sayadaw Upandita, Shweyumin, Tejaniya. Uh, because when they were teaching, especially you know, Joseph and Jack and Steve Armstrong and all these Theravada teachers we know, they were teaching the practices in the IMS in the 70s and they were realizing, wow, like there's a lot of self-hatred in our culture. So much of it. And, um, and it's overwhelmingly abundant. And so this Vipassana of just kind of this dry monitoring, which we have, like, like just sort of watching experience coming and going, it's just not enough, actually, for most of us. Important, but definitely not enough. And so uh, it was trying to bring a more heartfelt, more relational aspect into Vipassana. So we're not just watching things coming and going, but we're watching our relationship to those things, and we're watching if we can actually extend uh, kindness into areas where we once couldn't. And probably the area which we need to extend it the most is towards ourselves. You know, when you sit down and close your eyes, do you enjoy the company that you keep in the privacy of your own mind? <laughs> Sometimes. Probably, maybe a lot of the time. Sometimes not so much. It's like, oh, here we go, you again. Oh, just let me have this one day. <laughs> and that's right where it begins. And I think a lot of the meta practices is a practice of right speech or samavacha, finding our voice. That really the first thing that we transform in right speech and this practice is really trying to, in, to change or transform the internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. That's probably the heavy lifting for most of us. It was for me. And if, if that's all you get out of it, I'm more than happy. You know, that's a big, that's a big project. So there's a way in which we can observe the objects and the things that arrive in our experience, we can feel um, the receiving of that. Right? There's this poly term that actually is, is rich in, in Buddhist psychology and, and the links to dependent origination, which means contact, or it really means to touch. So the mind is touching experience in every moment, but that's only actually half of it. It's not just to touch, it's actually to be touched. Touching and be touched and touching and be touched. And so there's this constant rocking back and forth of a relational experience. And sometimes we're just like, ooh, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like that. 
And then we get, then we invest all these habits into what we don't like, and we don't like that, and we don't want that, and we want to get rid of that, and this part of me is bad, and that part of me is good, and gee, I seem to have more bad parts than good parts, I wonder why that is. Well, it's probably because of my parents and my childhood, you know. And just <laughs> That's okay, right? That's, we, 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 you know, we have to, we have to, you know, we have to work with the mind that we have, and so I want to do a practice first and foremost of, of sila. Because I think sometimes we forget that sila is a cultivation practice. It's not just let's be good Buddhists and adhere to the five precepts. It's certainly part of it. But it's actually really much deeper and much more embodied than that. And that is your commitment to harmlessness and your commitment to goodness. Uh, and, and the fact that, you know, and I think that we don't measure this very much or we don't track this very much. But to realize that we actually have chosen to, to have the courage to try to want to become positive agents of change in the world. Not everybody's trying to do this, right? And that, that, there's something about that I think that you can really feel good about. Sila, sometimes hard word to translate, goodness, integrity, ethics. But really, I think what it is on a subjective experience, it's your commitment to your values, whatever your values are. And I'm sure that there's a lot of universal overlap in this room, but there's certain values that you probably hold uh, more dear than other values, maybe honesty or fidelity or kindness. We all have them. And so the discipline of sila is, a, is really kind of your discipline to your values. And, there's a, there, and that in itself is, has a cooling, has a nibbana quality, a liberation quality, that just that actual practice, which we don't always track, is really so crucial. Without it, actually, none of this is possible. None of it. So the, the structure of sila, samadhi, panya, uh, you know, um, goodness, meditation, wisdom, is really the... the, 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 um, the in the dirt, in the earth of cultivation is where the sila metta is. And there's a saying that goes, um, out of the uh, soil of sila and metta uh, blooms the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Mm -hmm. This is kind of, right, this very cultivation kind of analogy. And so we really, our best thing, if you all know anybody who's ever had a garden, the most important part is kind of the soil. Right? Not the seeds that you buy or the plants that you buy. And we all know that, you know, tomatoes and flowers and green beans, they don't grow very well in white Malibu beach sand, do they? No, they grow very well in dark, wet, stinky, yucky, chicken poopy soil. And that's the dukkha of our life. That's the hard things we've been through. That's our soil. And a lot of us have some really great soil. I have some killer soil. <laughs> right? So, so the, the, the hard things we've been through are actually to our advantage in the practice. They're not detrimental. They're not objects of the practice. They're actually the rich soil in which your practice can thrive. 